Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hey guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding Powerlifting podcast. I feel like I've messed that up, but um, it kind of flowed through fine. So we are going to get through as many questions as we can today. Mike has a time limit, uh, and so I appreciate that. And we're going to go straight into it. So the winner for the ebook will also be announced. Uh, I'll discuss that with Mike afterwards. I appreciate everyone who has left a review. The reviews that have been left are fantastic. So thank you so much. But I want to make sure you get as much value out of this podcast so we get straight into the questions. So the first question is from Brett. For the main moves in a program such as the squat, bench, deadlift, I understand periodization is essential and progressive overload. But what about for accessory bodybuilding type work? Do you need to have a periodized plan with planned in progressive overload for those as well? For example, a leg press, lateral raise, dumbbell, um, or should you just keep them within a rep range, add load uh, when you can do more than say that 12. So you've got to that upper end. So that's the progressive overload scheme. Or do you need to have days lower and higher in reps for these movements? Hopefully that question kind of made sense. It made tons of sense. You know, so, so the, there's an answer that is the most true and there's an answer that's good enough for almost all cases. Fundamentally, and I'll be very clear about this, if you want to be the best that you can be, you periodize everything. Every fucking detail of your entire life needs to be manipulated for maximum outcome. If you want to be the absolute best you can be, there is a certain amount of sleep you will need, a certain amount of food, a certain amount of meal timing, a certain amount of macronutrients, everything, and definitely the accessory exercises. Now, if you don't go crazy in the accessory movements, generating a ton of fatigue that will interfere with your main movements, can you just play them by ear? Yes. But I will tell you this. You can think that just playing them by ear will cause you less anxiety than having to generate a planned, periodized program for them. But it goes both ways. So for some people, totally, like they're just not going to want to think about all that crap and they can just train the accessories, do a good job, make shit harder every week, totally fine. Other kinds of people, and, and I think many people listening, and perhaps Brett himself, if they are left to guess, they're not comfortable with that. That's what causes them anxiety, right? And it's not worth it. So if you have a little bit of time, plan everything. Make sure it's logical, and then you won't have to worry. You just look at your sheet, and that's what you got to do. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're okay playing it by ear, then it's okay. So for example, sometimes when I play workouts by ear, it's like when I travel a lot. If I travel, you know, I'm not going to guarantee to access certain uh, equipment. So for example, my, 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 my workout last week will be you know, pull up, weighted pull up with no weight, and then uh, some kind of like, row machine. And I'll get to the gym. There is no row machine. There's just a cable row and some dumbbells. So I'll do cable rows and I'll kind of eyeball the weight and make it just a bit more of a stimulus than last time just by feel. That's good enough because, you know, if you don't have the same machine, you can't be precise. But insofar as you can be precise, I would recommend doing so because it probably just takes a load off of you not having to worry about am I doing the right shit? Because the thing is, there's no way to offload the intellectual effort completely of planning. You're either going to do the intellectual effort at the front end before you write your program or you're going to have to do it during the workout. Like, well, what should I do? I'm not a big fan of thinking during the workout. I like to do my thinking when I'm not training. That way when I train, it's all, it's all, it's all big uh, roadmap. It's all laid out for me. Hopefully that answers the question. So ideally, yes, you would periodize. But if you really don't want to and you don't think it's worth the time, it's a very, very minor detail. But one really quick thing, don't um, – don't go overboard on accessories and cost yourself the main moves. So for example, if you plan your accessories, you can plan it in such a way as be like, okay, I got my squats taken care of. Now I'm going to do something else for quads, like live process. And you write in like six sets. 
But then you look and you're like, okay, six sets is going to mess me up pretty bad. I won't be ready for squats next time, like later in the week that are still pretty heavy. Maybe I should do three. If you eyeball it the day of the workout, you could feel pretty good and you can hit it hard. And then you realize two days later, well, shit, there's no way I'm going to heal for my next workout and you screwed stuff up. So I'd say there's a pretty good advantage to pre-planning everything. And if you don't pre-plan everything, make sure you really think through when you're doing the actual movements. Mm-hmm. I guess the reason for making sure, you, I mean, the compound movements are the biggest bang for your bucks. So you've got to have those like programmed, periodized, and properly laid out. And I think something that I've used with my clients is either double or triple progression for those assistance moves, uh, which is basically like you have a, a set range and a rep range. And so when you hit the upper end of that rep range with that load, you can add a set rather than load because sometimes for those smaller movements, they can be difficult to con- continually add load. But yeah, con- I completely agree. Like periodization for life. I mean, I guess that's why Renaissance periodization, you are named what you are because you realize the importance of finding every minute detail. <laughs> for sure. And, and, and if it's not up your alley to find every minute detail, that's totally cool. And the good thing is, is that things like face potentiation or the exact kind of progression you use are very small details. On the program. Mm-hmm. They, are, they almost don't matter, but they matter a little bit. And remember that when, when you're saying the question of, okay, do I, do I really have to progress through loads or can I just progress through sets? That's just another kind of progression. And it can require the same kind of sitting down and the same kind of thinking and the same kind of planning. You just manipulate variables a little bit differently. Like for example, you know, when I do lateral races with dumbbells, I don't go like 35 pounds one week, 40 the next week, 45 the week after. I mean, it just totally fucks up your up ranges because you'd have to be so far away from failure at 35 to be remotely close to failure at 45 of the same reps. So I actually will do the same weight twice in a row, you know, week one, week two, but I'll add like two reps to each uh, set. Mm-hmm. And then the next week I'll bump up the weight and go back down two reps and then add two reps again at the week after that. But, but that's still a plan, right? So if, if the yeah. question is, you know, uh, it, it, do I have to plan? The answer is planning is usually better than not planning, but can you get creative and not have to just add weight? Absolutely. Awesome. So yeah, I think the you described double progression and triple progression. I think if people want to look those up, I think those will really help them out. Um, so next question, Pascal has asked, and I think um, this I really want to ask this because he's a friend, and I believe he's actually going through this problem right now. So how should one adjust the diet when a major injury occurs, which even needs surgery? let's take an injury where walking with crutches is necessary for a couple of weeks. So he's guessing that you're going to need more energy because you're walking with crutches and potentially needing more to heal those injuries. Um, Wondering if you've got any kind of studies or clients or yourself to make some advice for him. Yeah, I've got some advice for sure. On the one hand, you need more energy to facilitate injury recovery, which is an energy taxing process. On the other hand, your locomotion abilities are going to be altered and you're not no longer as efficient. Walking with crutches takes a lot more energy than walking. On the other hand, you're not going to be nearly as active because of your limitations for injury. You're certainly not going to be able to train legs like you used to. So, you know, on the one hand, some things take more energy. On the other hand, they take less. And on average, they might take about the same. I would actually say you're still expending less energy when you're injured than when you're not. So you don't need to eat more calories than usual. Protein is critical for recovery and especially recovery injury on the one hand. But on the other hand, because you're probably not training your whole body as hard as you used to before the injury, you need less protein because the rest of your body isn't as demanding. Those two probably balance out and you probably get the same amount of protein that you used to. And instead of going to train your body super hard, that protein now goes to recover your injuries. So I don't think you need to increase or decrease your protein. At the end of the day, I do have a really big take-home message, which is the diet should be isocaloric, a very big common seduction, if you will, is people will get hurt and will think now is the time for me to get leaner. No, 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 no. Because that's how you lose a bunch of muscle. You can't train properly. You start to diet without being able to train properly. You're going to lose a shitload of muscle. Also, you probably can't do cardio, which really fucking sucks. (laughs) So um, not a time to get leaner, not a time to get bigger. Because if you start gaining weight, you say, I'm going to heal up by gaining weight. Oh yeah, sure. But you're going to actually uh, you know, gain a whole bunch of fat. And in addition to that, they've actually shown that in certain hospital settings, patients who gain weight actually don't recover as well as patients who keep their weight steady, uh, which is very interesting, a little bit counterintuitive. Um, 
So my, my biggest recommendation is isocaloric, whatever you weigh right now, you should weigh about the same in two or three months when you're cleared for more activity. Keep daily protein, a gram per pound or, you know, two grams per kilo or something, something reasonable and train the living shit out of everything that's not hurt. Like if your legs are hurt, you better have the most fucking jacked upper body you've ever had a couple months later. Because remember, there's two kinds of MRV. There's the MRV for individual body parts. Your bicep go too far. But there's total body MRV. When part of your body's hurt, your total body MRV is free like the wind. <laughs> okay? So you can smash shit and get up to each individual upper body muscle MRV and not have to worry about total fatigue. So you'll be able to survive chest, back, shoulder, arm workouts like you never thought were possible in sequence. And you'll never have that central fatigue. You know, if you train everything super hard, pretty soon you're not really that hungry and you just fucking hate the gym. That just won't happen. Because if you're not training like one leg or both legs, fuck man, you got all kinds of total body MRV left over. So train the shit out of what's not hurt. Keep the same protein and keep the same calories. And you'll probably put on a good deal of muscle in your what's not hurt. You'll probably lose some muscle in what's hurt. But the good thing is, as many people have pointed out before, uh, the most famous of which is Greg Knuckles, once you gain a certain level of muscularity in a body part, there's a bit of retention going on there, quite a bit, because it's mostly of satellite cell infiltration that occurs with gaining. Once you gain to that level, and you, you get hurt or something, regaining is easy. But as you gain to new levels, keeping that new plateau is also easy. So you manage to get your really jacked up, or let's say you hurt your legs, you manage to get your really jacked upper body, and even when you go back to training normally, that's yours to keep, right? And you're saying, okay, fuck, my upper body got more jacked, but like one of my legs is tiny now. That shit comes back in months. So now you're at a new elevated level. So don't waste time. The cool thing about injuries, all injuries to some extent, unless you like get into a car accident with a fucking tank and your whole, your body's broken or some shit like that. The, uh, all injuries have a silver lining. And that is, whatever's not hurt, you are going to progress. The dumbest thing you can do with injury is get all depressed and shit, just stop showing up at the gym. Mm -hmm. Because like, when I get hurt, the first thing on my mind, tweak my knee, the first thing is, my delts are going to have it, and my pecs are going to have it, my back's going to have it. What can I improve? Because that's when you improve a bunch of stuff. Because let's be honest, people will do focus programs to try to improve one body part versus another. Mm -hmm. But, you know, man, I don't have uh, patients half the time for those. Like focus program means you intentionally stop training something. So like you intentionally go easy on your legs and you start looking at your legs and they kind of look pretty good, but man, they could look better. And you're like, fuck this. I'm going to train my legs again. And then you're back to training everything. So an injury is kind of like a for sure guaranteed way to make you focus on stuff that you want to bring up anyway. And I think it's a, a good opportunity to do so. Cool. No, I love this because <clears throat> I recently also spoke to you because I've got an injured leg which has basically put me in a position where <clears throat> I can't really load it effectively, but I can train my upper body a lot. And something actually I'd be interested to hear because I know traditionally when we're maintaining weight, you normally go through low volume, higher intensities. Um, and that's kind of like a primer for then building muscle in future. So when you're looking to build muscle mass, maybe on your upper body, your um, kind of if I at the moment actually I'm going through a maintenance phase low volume and that was all planned so if I want to come out into like a massing phase but focus on the upper body for me personally would you again advise maybe or just maintenance and I should see those kind of gains regardless even though and this is kind of a special case for that you can probably gain quite a bit while maintaining in that case but a very small surplus might do you good I can't be sure which one is best but I think a very small surplus wouldn't hurt because if you put on a bunch of muscle and just a little bit of fat with a slight surplus, yeah, I think you're in a pretty good spot. So, Sweet. Yeah. That, that's what I was planning to do, and, I, and that's good because that means I get to eat a bit more. Uh, and then actually, in a related note, because obviously, say you've got a mind injury like myself, and I'm going to be a bit selfish here, so I can do BFR with my legs. Uh, one side's completely injury-free. It's just one, the other side use too much bfr is there a certain amount you should use because i know you've done it in the past where you've had injuries and you've used bfr to really maintain those so that's blood flow restriction training for those kind of listening in you can't do too much bfr but it just stops working all that well after a couple of definitely a couple of months 
But what you can do is go through a progression. Assuming your injury is healing, the progression is you do uh, katsu or metabolite or blood, blood flow restriction training for a while, maybe two months. And after that, it just doesn't have the same hit as it used to. But now you're a bit recovered, and now you can start to use super high weights or super light weights as super high reps. That's another form of metabolite training, but you can use more weight than you were with BFR, and that's another novel stimulus. After that, you should be okay to maybe go for sets of 15 or sets of 20 or sets of 12 even, heavier. And then after that, you should be damn near completely healed and go back to training with normal bodybuilding stuff. So there's a, you know, if you want the road back, it can be up to six to eight months of effective training stacked on top of each other. You have BFR, you got traditional metabolite, high rep, short rest, and you got, uh, you know, after that, you've got traditional high rep training for volume, which still, like, if you hurt your lower back or something, man, you know, you're going to be ready to squat sets of 15 way before you're going to ready to squat doubles and triples. And people get this idea, like, I can't do doubles and triples. Fuck this. I'm not training my legs. Like, you could have fucking huge legs by the time you get back to doubles and triples. So I think it's really, really a good idea to stack those on top of each other and blocks. And another thing is, with, with injury especially, it, it's a really good idea to think outside the box. And it's a really good idea to play around with things that, you know, in training, it's a really good idea to be conservative most times because you don't want to go overboard. You don't want to get hurt. You don't want to overreach because you got to fix that with deloading. So you always got to, you know, when you're training heavy and hard, any idiot can fucking train a ton. So you got to be like, ah, you know, be careful, right? You monitor your fatigue, et cetera. Now, you never stop monitoring that, but, you know, imagine you can only squat 60 kilos safely. After you do the BFR, you're back to squatting 60. And anything much above 60 gives you problems, but 60 is okay. So we're dealing with a fundamental fact for the following uh, little thought experiment. 60 kilograms is good for high bar squats and maybe even front squats. So then most people go, you know, if they're 100 kilo, 200 kilo, 300 kilo squatters, they go 60 kilos is fucking useless for me. And they just quit or they just, just do something else or just prioritize their upper body, which is fine, but, but they just give up on their legs. Here's the thing you better fucking hope you don't get hurt. Not because it's going to sit back, but it's because it's going to make your legs even bigger because of the kind of dumb ass shit you're in for with 60 kilos. I can make a workout that makes 60 kilos the biggest fucking enemy you've ever had. Pain and fear. That's going to be a periodized plan. You've got five sets of pain and 10 sets of fear <laughs> superseded into that shit. And that's when it's time to think outside the box because people normally think, you know, okay, like, you know, six to eight sets of lower body. And then I take a couple days off and I do that again. That's nice. When you're working with 60 kilos, you can do some creative ass shit. And, and, and what a great problem it would be to be in a situation where you're too fatigued from using that little weight. I mean, mm -hmm. holy fuck, having to back off because you're training too hard when you're injured. I mean, you know, and not to do with the injury, just general fatigue. I mean, that's like a miracle. Can you imagine like you're, you're, you know, you got hurt a couple weeks ago and now you're having the kind of workouts that you dread because they're so fucking hard. Like, oh my God. Like I kind of wish I didn't get injured. So training could be easier, but the thing is you're gaining all these amazing gains with this high rep, high volume metabolite stuff. So here's a really cool example. If you can only squat 60 kilos and you say you're a hundred kilo to 200 kilo squatter somewhere around there, 60 kilos. So what do you do? Fuck that. Here's a good example, and, and there's many, many creative ways to do this. It doesn't involve this, okay? You put 60 kilos, you warm up to 60 kilos on the bar. You do 60 kilos on the squat with a four-second eccentric, but no pause at the bottom. So you go one, two, three, four, up, one, two, three, four, up, just like that, until one rep shy of failure. You rack the weight, you probably lay down on the ground, and you time it out for just one minute of rest. As soon as your alarm goes off for one minute, you'll go again. And you do 12 sets of that shit. Two options. You're going to die. Sorry, didn't mean to flip it off. You're going to die or you're going to grow. Either way, it's going to be sweet. Now, do you rush into that as soon as you get hurt? No. But just know that you have those options potentially on the back burner as options. So when people get hurt and they say, man, I can't lift my usual heavy weights, the first thing I ask him is, can you do reps with a light weight? And they're like, yeah, all day. And I'm like, hee hee, you're fucked because <laughs> you're in for some bullshit. And the thing is the bullshit grows you like crazy. Some of the sorest I've ever gotten was like a week after I fucking herniated my, uh, a, a disc in my lumbar spine. I used 60 kilos or 135 or whatever. Okay. I did blood flow restriction training. I tied my legs off. Okay. 
and I did 100 total squats with 60 kilos over the course of like eight minutes. Okay. Oh my God. I barely left the gym. Like I was like, what the fuck is going on? It was the biggest pump of my life. And I was like, Oh, I wonder if I'll get sore. And the next day I couldn't get out of bed. And then later that day I was like, uh, something's wrong. Like I have rabbit or some (laughs) shit. I didn't, I didn't get rabdo, but the next week, all I had to do was do like 120 reps and it was great. I got just as sore. I got just as fucked up. You know what I mean? So uh, when people get hurt, there are many very creative ways. And, and the fundamentals are with short rest breaks and try some eccentrics and uh, make sure you do high volumes and high volumes is not just quick characteristically people think of high volumes. Yeah. Six sets of squats with 200 kilos or 180 kilos. That'll fuck you up. Six sets is more than enough. But if you're only using 60 kilos, forget about six sets. Forget about that shit. Do double the work and you will get similar kinds of growth for several months that you would with, you know, a hundred more kilos or something like that. So don't give up hope. Eventually, maybe I'll write like an article on this. I've, I've had this process summarized a little bit. Maybe if you remind me or something, I'll write an article about specific, really cool techniques to use when you're hurt. And you'll fucking mm-hmm. you'll have another reason to wish you never get hurt because on the good thing <laughs> is if you'll get hurt you'll grow but on the bad news I mean the shit is just fucking mind boggling and it's also like embarrassing you're like squatting sixty kilos you're struggling girl walks in and like she's like can I work <laughs> in with you and you're like no I'm on timed intervals go away <laughs> you just don't want to be out rep by her I I've done metabolite training can attest to this he's done this with me before where we do so many drop sets in the squat that the last set is body weight. And I, I don't mean the bar. I mean body weight. <laughs> Jared has seen me go to failure on rep number six of body weight squats. So for, for those of you viewing at home, that means I did six squats just standing there with my hands out in front of me. And then I couldn't get number seven. I went up and I just fell and I just fell over. And that was it. And so people walk in looking at me being like, well, fuck, that guy's the weakest dude with the biggest <laughs> legs I've ever seen. Cool thing is it works. I like it because I, I'd love an article on that. And I think loads of people appreciate it because this is the outside of the box stuff. People don't think about unless they get into that situation. So I haven't really done much blood flow restriction training in the past. I did it recently. I did hack squats and then I went on to leg extensions and then I tried oh. to do body, body weight squats and I was absolutely wrecked. And I, I was out of interest for those eight minutes of those squats. Did you leave the wraps on the entire time, I guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I think I, I, might, I might have taken them off like once because I was like, okay, my legs are on fire. Uh, I took them <laughs> off and then I did like a couple more sets. But, you know, yeah, it was just like you, you can, if it comes down to it, you can do a lot of fucking damage. Like, and this is also cool stuff for when you're on vacation. Like, you know, I've been on a cruise before um, or go to a hotel and, you know, you want to enjoy your vacation. You want to eat a lot of food. I always want to grow. So I'm like, Get to a hotel gym, and some people are like, oh, the hotel gym only has a Smith machine. Only a Smith machine? Oh, my God. You can fuck yourself up so bad in that thing. Even if there's just machines of just like regular fitness machines, like a back machine and a chest machine with creative metabolite training, you don't need heavy weights and and barbells for short periods of time. Now, of course, metabolite training doesn't replace these things as meat and potatoes, right? And as soon as you heal, you go back to the stuff that works the best over the long term. For the yep. short term, oh man, when I get to like, uh, my girlfriend and I are going on a cruise later this year, and it's just a short cruise, four days. We already, of course, of course, we already scoped out the the cruise ship's gym, <laughs> and like, look at what machines they have, and they have like a selectorized leg press, and I'm already fearing that shit because it's gonna be like <laughs> 120 reps in eight minutes or something, and I'm gonna do body weight lunges and fall over, and run to the buffet, or get wheeled over to the buffet. I don't even know what's gonna happen. I'm just probably gonna bring food with me and just eat burgers. <laughs> You know, between sets of squats, that sounds like a great idea. That's awesome. And actually, that makes me feel really good because I actually, when I went traveling to Australia, I was using, I think you've heard of Maya reps now where you do kind of that activation high rep set and then you do multiple kind of rep, like cluster sets. You do minimal rest, uh, tiny weights. And I was just using a suitcase and I was doing squats with the suitcase, weighted in like rows with it. And uh, like it works and it was tiring and tough. So Yeah. yeah, I love that. So uh, let's go on to the next question from Tony, who's asked, and hopefully this, this might be a short answer, but is powdered milk safe for long-term use, or is there actually a credible link between atherosclerosis and the higher 
control levels of powdered milk compared to fresh milk? I have no idea. If I had to take a guess, yes, it's safe. It's approved by pretty much every world governing health body. Um, most of the concentrations of various chemicals that people talk about are wildly exaggerated in their effect. One thing that people recently been asking me is, so what do you think about brown rice versus white rice? And I'm like, I think both are okay. Brown rice has a little bit more fiber and micronutrients, so maybe that's cool. And they're like, what about like the fucking, what the fuck are they even saying? I forgot. There's like um, arsenic. Yeah, there's arsenic oh, yeah. in brown rice or something. And I'm like, okay, if you get arsenic poisoning from brown rice, you'll be the first fucking person to do so ever. <laughs> okay, by the way, apple cores, the apple seeds have cyanide in them. All right. Nobody's ever committed suicide by eating. Fuck. Can you imagine like an astronaut goes into space, gets marooned <laughs> and they're like, Hey, we have this pill for you. If you need to kill yourself, he opens it up. It's an apple seed. He's like, what the <laughs> fuck? eats it. Nothing happens. Right. So I wouldn't worry about that kind of stuff. Very, you know, Gatorade is made with a kind of fat that has been shown to be like deleterious to health. The process of making Gatorade powder, for example. And uh, you know, how many grams of fat are in Gatorade? Approximately zero. And if you zoom in another thousandth, it's still approximately <laughs> zero. So it's just one of these things where I think it's just wildly overblown. I don't know the exact details on powdered milk, but I'm very tempted to say that unless you're getting medical literature, uh, and if you're looking at websites like Alternet or fucking SaveTheEarth.com, shit is probably definitely probably wrong. Uh, I would find some medical literature. I, I don't know of any. But, uh, you know, you can do some pretty good searching. And I really do. I, I anticipate 95 to 5 that it's not an, uh, a problem at all. I'm surprised that many people are still using powdered milk. Uh, but obviously, there are yeah. people using it. <laughs> I guess. Cool. Yeah, so next question from Barry says, do you think use of artificial sweeteners are okay to help a client wean away from sugar? Uh, I know in the latest ebook you talk about sweeteners and how they are not all bad uh, and they're not even very bad at a metabolic or hormonal level. Oh, actually, that was a question. Are they even bad at a metabolic or hormonal level? Again, this would be for clients and people's nutrition. I'm trying to improve by reducing their sugar. So thank you for the good work. Keep it up. Thank you so much for complimenting my work. Uh, Mary, yes, it's absolutely the case. You can use artificial sweeteners to wean people off of sugar. When you replace, as long as the calories are held equal, if you eat more whole grains, fruits and veggies, and stay away more from our, our you know processed sugars, but you continue to have the processed sugar-like taste and feel of Diet Coke versus regular Coke, right? Of protein bars with artificial sweeteners versus you know full sugar candy bars or something. It absolutely works to quote unquote wean people off of sugar. There is no reason to suspect that artificial sweeteners are bad. Most of them have been tested to a profound extent and uh, I recommend them wholeheartedly. Um, there is a chance that in five or 10 years or 15 years, I'll look back at my recommendation of artificial, artificial sweeteners and say, oh my God, well, what was I saying? It turns out they're bad. But something would have to contradict something like a 97 to three or 98 to two paradigm of current research that says they're safe versus that brings up issues with they're not being safe. And we're talking about a, a sum total of thousands of studies. I mean, man, you know, that would be one hell of a bias. It would be unprecedented. Uh, so, mm -hmm. and some of them like aspartame, have been around for over 30 years, you know, if, it, and the thing is, is that medical governing bodies and doctors and stuff, they're always looking for stuff that, that hurts us. And there's plenty of stuff that's bad for us. And I just have, I can't pin on anything on artificial sweeteners yet. And the most baffling thing to me is when people say, oh, I don't eat that stuff, but I eat stevia or stevia or whatever. Uh, stevia is uh, a non-nutritive sweetener, but, it, but it's natural. It just gives a shit, you know, like a bunch of poisons natural. Cyanide's fucking natural. It occurs in apples. So it's just naturalistic fallacy writ large. And I'll tell you this, overconsumption of sugar kills uh, probably, probably – tens of millions, if not hundreds around the world every year via its contribution to obesity. Artificial sweeteners don't contribute to obesity for all we know. So uh, yes, artificial sweeteners are great. I would, I would use them uh, liberally. 
Awesome. And actually, on a related topic to this, do you ever find, or I don't know if there's any literature to talk about this, but when people have this sweet from the artificial sweeteners, or maybe like have a, a Diet Coke or something, did there, is there any literature showing that this then creates cravings for sweet things? Have you, do you ever experience this when you have your caffeine-free Diet Coke? Um, Mike? Yeah. So from what I'm aware, diet beverages or our non-nutritive sweeteners i actually gave a lecture very similar today in my class about this they have the propensity to reduce cravings but they have no effect on hunger so let me be particular as to what i mean hunger is defined as the desire to eat food that has calories in it an example of somebody who's hungry is you know someone stumbles in from the future or the past or some shit in a time machine into like a food warehouse and they see that there's oatmeal and they rip open the oatmeal containers and start eating dry oatmeal. That is a hungry individual. A similar thing is a bodybuilder at the end of a contest prep where if the coach goes, okay, dude, you're looking really great. And we actually need you to fill out with more carbs. So you can have as much potato and oatmeal and chicken breast as you want tonight. Like that is fucking music to a bodybuilder's ears. That's hunger. Cravings can occur when you're not hungry. There are desires to eat a particular kind of food. So for example, after you've eaten a big meal at a restaurant, somebody gives you the option. So, okay, do you want more of this chicken and rice dish that you just had? Or even just another dish of pasta and shrimp? Or do you want chocolate cake? And they'll say, that other food sounds disgusting. I'm super full. Ooh, but the chocolate cake sounds good. You're not hungry. You're not demanding energy. You're demanding the certain kinds of nutrients or certain kinds of features the chocolate cake has. Artificial sweeteners have no power at all, as would be predicted, to affect your hunger levels. If you're hungry and you're drinking Diet Coke, it does pretty much dick for you other than the fact that the caffeine reduces hunger. So if you have a Diet Sprite, you're just like, oh, man, this tastes great. Fuck, I'm still hungry, right? But it was nice and sweet. However, if you are adequately fed and you have a craving for sweet things, I can knock off cravings. You have a Diet Coke, like, so for example, after dinner, you want something sweet. You don't care if it's a beverage. You have a, like a Diet Sprite or Diet Coke, man, it knocks you the fuck out. You're like, oh, that's great. I don't really want chocolate cake anymore. Totally. So yes, artificial sweeteners can combat cravings very well, but they can't combat hunger. And people get those too confused mm -hmm. and they start saying, well, you know, I have Diet Coke. I still want sugar. Well, it's because you're fucking hypocaloric and you still want food. But if your food needs are met, diet products seem to be very effective at getting rid of the sweet tooth. And I guess at least when someone's drinking the the beverage, that could they could be not actually hungry. They could be thirsty because often I guess some people when they're thirsty relate that to hunger. So that can help fill the stomach and at least provide some short term relief as well. So I've definitely heard that. I'm not sure how much of that is true with the thirst yeah. and hunger stuff. It sounds a little confusing. But hey, look, you know if you're um, if you want to feel fuller and if you want the sweet tooth knocked out, but you already ate. Yeah, like a Diet Sprite or a Diet Coke or something can go a really long way. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah, it's just not nutritive. So we just have to make sure to obviate that hunger. If the hunger is taken care of, diet beverages are great. They're just not anti-hunger tools. As I think people expect them to be. That's the problem. People say, you know, I usually drink a Coke and I'm not as hungry afterwards. But I drink a Diet Coke and I'm still hungry, even though the sweetness was nice. So it didn't knock out my sweet tooth. Well, what it didn't do is it didn't knock out your hunger. If you eat plenty of like good food, fruits, veggies, whole grains, lean meats, and a meal, you're not super hungry anymore, but you could use something sweet. If you have an artificially sweetened food, you don't want anything sweet anymore, and you got no calories out of it. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking as I was saying it to you, I was thinking, I don't think I've actually seen any scientific literature on thirst being mistaken for hunger, but I've certainly people, heard yeah, it a people, lot. That's a, you know, people, that's one of those things people say where I haven't heard any literature about it. And I think people just take it for granted. It's, it's one of those like little zingers people use like, well, you know that when you're thirsty or you're hungry, you're actually could be thirsty. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Really? Maybe that's true. I haven't seen a fucking little bit of literature on it. I, from my personal experience or my coaching experience, I can't really pin down what happens with that. But the good news is, you know, sometimes people don't need to eat a uh, sweet tooth. They can just drink the sweet tooth stuff. Uh, so I think it works in that regard. Mm -hmm. I think something that I've also seen is that even calorific beverages like a Coke, that isn't great for satisfying hunger. You're much better off having some actual like food within your mouth, having it like a salad is going to fill you up. That's the, the equivalent calories.
Totally. And, and this is actually, uh, sorry, real quick, if, if I may, um, an important kind of note, a good little tidbit for those uh, tuning in is that the last thing you want to do when you're trying to lose weight or keep manage your weight and you have trouble with overeating is accidentally use tricks that the biggest people in the world have been using to try to eat more. <laughs> Liquid is one of those tricks. So when people say, you know, I drink orange juice and apple juice because they're healthy, I'm like, juices aren't healthy. I'll just straight up say that. Like, I thought they were healthy, but they're fine. But there's an easy way to get a shitload of calories and not really do much to your hunger. One example I use in class, I get some laughs out of people. How many people, you know, when the stewardess on the plane comes by and you get a Sprite, like just a bunch of sugar and water, you drink the Sprite. How many people, when she comes by offering a meal, like on her, on her she's like, dinner, you want dinner? How many people are like, oh, I had that Sprite. I mean, my God, it was 40 grams of carbs. <laughs> Nobody says that. But, but if you get the same equivalent, let's say two or three like peaches or apples or pears, you eat two or three apples and she comes by with dinner and you're just like, I mean, yeah, you can leave it. But like, I need a couple minutes here because I'm stuffed. So liquid calories, if you're dieting or have trouble maintaining your weight, don't fucking take them in. Go for solid food. And, and right now I'm in a post-contest, post-photo post post shoot, like post-end-of-cut recovery phase. And I don't take in any liquid calories at all. And I'm actually starting – so I gained a little weight rebound, just like a, a kilo or two. I'm actually starting to lose weight again. I'm like, shit, shit, I got to eat more because I'm eating such high-fiber foods, high, such high-protein foods, so many mm -hmm. whole grains, fruits, and veggies. Uh, shit is work to eat and it's not exactly like you know, i was eating a meal uh, i had to get to this podcast late because i was eating a meal i opened up my meal i heated up i'm like oh fuck i forgot it's like a shitload of veggies and i'm like ah, nah, nah. <laughs> i ate half the meal i still have to eat the other half because i couldn't even finish it so give yourself all the advantages you know eat, eat a, a diet high in voluminous foods and don't drink your calories if that's the issue and and, and for the few of us that have problems gaining weight and some do Drink your calories, at least some of them. You know, mm -hmm. It's a big advantage. Awesome. And so Sebastian has asked for the next question. Is it better for hypertrophy to have a top set with back offsets or just to stick to straight sets? What are the advantages and disadvantages of each? So I guess with the, the top set, maybe you're doing like an eight rep max and then backing off 10% and doing back offsets, whereas straight sets you might just do maybe but do sixes for the straight sets, staying a bit away from failure. For most of the weeks of your accumulation phase, it's a self-canceling, auto-correcting problem, and it doesn't matter. Let me explain how. If you do a top set and back off sets, you tried very hard on the first set, and then equivalently hard or nice, easier on the other sets. So your difficulty looks like this, okay? On the other hand, if you do straight sets, you know, sets of eight with 120 kilos, the first set of eight's not that hard. The last set of eight, like six sets of eight, is like fucking mind-bogglingly difficult because you're fatigued. So now you've staggered your difficulty like this. The mean difficulty and overload is identical for those two groups, right? The average is the same. So it's really the, it would be very, very hard-pressed to say that one is advantageous over the other, it's just a matter of what, how you're front loading or back loading your difficulty. And I think both of them have their merits. If you're a bit more injury averse, I would say that just straight sets are better. If you're healthy uh, and you like to front load your work psychologically, I would say that the, uh, the one top set is better. Um, so, but that's for the most part pretty pretty even. On the last microcycle when you're trying to intentionally overreach the last microcycle before a deload, the first method of top set and then down sets has a distinct advantage. And here it is. You can really give it your all on every single set. For example, if you do one repetition away from failure, the repetitions in reserve method in your last week, which I would recommend, that means you're saving one rep with each set. If you have a six by eight at the same intensity, 120 kilos, there's no way the first set can be one rep away from failure. It's impossible because there's no way you'd be able to hit an eight, six fucking sets later. It just wouldn't happen. So if you really want to push yourself, the first set has to be the fucking hardest set because you're fresh. 
and then you just do as many reps as you can each successive set as you drop you, you can drop the weight or you can drop the let the reps auto drop i just let my reps auto drop so mm-hmm. you're rowing like 120 kilos 13 reps on the first set 11 on the second nine on the third eight on the fourth seven on the fifth you know so on that allows you for the mean intensity to be like this okay it's up here their mean relative intensity is like this. Like it's all one from fail. The problem in relative intensity is a contributor to hypertrophy. It's a very small one because volume is king and average relative intensity is not very important. But if you do the six by eight, you know, it's still here and it could be here, but it's still, you're still losing some stuff over here. You could be working hard. So how hard you're trying in any one set looks like this. If you're doing the uh, drop down method, like it's fucking hard here. It's fucking hard here. It's hard all over but it looks like this with the six by eight or whatever, the straight sets. Because you're not supposed to be trying all that hard, your hardest in most of the accumulation microcycles as you go up, in, in the first accumulation microcycles, there's no worries. You can do either way. But if you really want the finely tuned, super scientific answer, the last microcycle, if you really want to push it, it's a very difficult uh argument to make that the straight sets method is superior it's an easy argument to make that you just got to go balls out on every single set and let the mm-hmm. fatigue auto regulate yourself down cool hope that made sense yeah no totally that's how i tend to program each week in fact kind of having a weight and then staying a certain number of reps away from failure and each set kind of auto regulating itself letting the reps fall where they may um it's quite an easy way to just kind of get it right i find uh, and yeah, you explained it really well, I think. It, it's a great, what's well, a great method of autoregulation in and of itself because, you know, you don't feel great some days, you just end up doing fewer reps. And the repetitions in reserve allows you that progression. You know, three from fail one week, two from fail the next, one from fail and then deload. You're auto-progressing in relative intensity, usually in absolute intensity too, because you, as you get stronger, or I'm sorry, as your, your strength maintains the amount cycle, but as you get closer to your peak effort, you end up going hard to do that. Uh, when you put more weight on the bar, you'll still get the same number of reps. So it's a way of overloading anyway. That's is that there's quite a bit more guessing involved, right? Because you're really asking if you do five by eight, you know, I got to be, you know, one rep away from failure on the fifth set. So what does that mean? The first set has to be how much weight do I pick for that? It's a bit of an extrapolation. It's much easier to figure out, okay, I need a weight and I'm going to go one rep away from fail. It's going to be in a certain rep range and it'll be good from there. So I think the re- the repetitions and reserve method is a little bit superior just with training economy about thinking about training. Uh, yeah. and it might be a little superior, especially in the peak microcycle. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I found it as a coach, as a training tool, and even for myself, thinking about my own programming, kind of really helpful. So yeah. Uh, I think we've probably got time for uh, just Sebastian's second question, and then hopefully we'll get to the other ones another time. Uh, Sorry, guys. So Sebastian has asked, is there something like a session muscle group MRV? Well, I'm doing close grip bench that when in one workout, more than six sets, the weight used in the sixth set compared to the weight in the first set is 20% lower. Is that still productive work? So I think that's kind of relative to spoke about in a sense. Yeah, very. Yes, there is such a thing as a single session MRV. And um, we, can, we can actually call it the set to set MRV. And the question is, for example, how much volume can you do in the first half of your workout and still recover to have a productive second half? Give you a quick illustration. Let's say that you are doing squats and then deadlifts. Your intra-workouts, intra-session squat MRV for that kind of workout could be six sets of squats. For example, just as an example. Why? Because if you do anything less than six sets, you can still have a productive deadlifting session. But if you do eight sets of squats, your lower back is so fucked, you can't even provide an overload for your deadlift. You can't do last week last week's deadlift weight for for today's deadlift weight for the same number of sets and reps. You literally didn't recover from last week because you screwed yourself up so much in that first session. And that needs to be taken into account. One of the things about, you know, like, so you know, the Rich Piana's eight hour arm workout or the fuck. 
And my first question is, how the fuck do you, how, what kind of weights are you lifting in hour number eight versus hour number six or whatever? <laughs> I mean, like, it's got to be minimum. And remember, there is an objective. It's not just like, well, just fucking put in more work, brother. You might be using, you know, 10 kilos, but it feels just like 40. So who gives a shit? Well, who gives a shit? This is a minimum intensity for hypertrophy with straight sets. 60% of your 1RM or so. You start lifting 30% 1RM weights. Oh, you're working. But to quote my colleague, Dr. Hoffman, that's called junk volume. No stimulus. Um, it's like running backwards in a race. Oh, you're running, but you're not getting anything done. So it's not a good idea. So yes, there is a within session MRV. Now, to be very clear about this, most intelligently designed training programs outside of like, you know, it's a lower back is really fatiguing. So you've got to kind of manage that. Um, within session MRV is like here and your <laughs> monthly MRV, right? To which you're supposed to be trying to hop to from microcycle to microcycle and eventually hit it or, re or, or just above in the last micro. Your monthly MRV, as far as sets per week, is like right here. <laughs> so like how many sets of squats and leg presses could I do, me, if I just had to go until I couldn't stimulate any more adaptations? I get fucking random like 20, 30, 40 sets in a workout. I could do that and still be above 60% of my one RM. How? I would just do doubles after a while. How fucked up, Steve, would you have to be to, <clears throat> to not be able to do doubles with 60% of your one RM? Dead. That's <laughs> but that's still quality work technically. So within session MRV usually doesn't apply to shit because it's so, and we're going to cover this. I already wrote this part for my contribution to the recovery book. We cover this in great detail in the recovery book. It's within session MRV is an extant thing. It's real, but boy, oh boy, is it usually irrelevant where it becomes relevant is uh, cause you know, so Sebastian said, you know, his strength drops by 20%, man, you know, if you start at 80% of your one RM drop by 20%, it's still 60%. I mean, you're still good to go. You pound it out. Right. And if you lower your reps, you can stay at 80 and just keep cranking it. Right. So we can get around that is within session MRV is, is really, really just not super important for a particular exercise slash muscle group. That's important. Within session MRV applies to every single muscle group that you work. And the way we calculate that is, so if you passed within session MRV for, let's say you do chest and, and, and uh, ooh, let's pick chest and front delts. Okay. Here's a better one, chest and triceps. You do chest first, then you do triceps after. If you hit up your chest with compound presses hard enough in the first hour, you are going to be so fucking tired and weak that your triceps, you won't really be able to do much meaningful work. And remember, the answer isn't just a stimulus. MRV is maximum recoverable volume. You have to do at least as much as you did last week or it counts as not recovering, and then you're above your MRV. So like if you did let's say five sets of chest or uh, like, you know, 10 sets total of chest last week and then four sets total of triceps and it was productive work. Let's say today your boys came through, you had a fucking massive chest workout. You're like, fuck it, let's keep going. And you did like 15 or 18 sets of chest. You get to your tricep workout. And the question is, are you going to be able to overload? Like, yeah, I did skull crushers with 50 kilos last week. You're going to try that shit. It's going to fall straight on your face. You're going to go, oh my God, my triceps are fucking dead. My chest can't even support them. My shoulders are blown up. What am I going to do? The answer is you're going to have a bullshit ass little pump up tricep workout and you're going to leave the gym. You're over your tricep MRV. Uh, you can't, you did not recover. So when we're training multiple body parts per day or per session, which we should be in almost all cases, just mm -hmm. like fucking bro science back and chest and legs or whatever, you got to consider that that is a situation you have to plan for. Uh, what's interesting is somebody asked me, so I posted a workout I just did recently, which I'm still sore from, which I trained a little bit sore today for my easy workout. It was a quad workout and it went, I did calves on calf machine for a couple of sets. I did some single leg hamstring curls on a single leg hamstring machine. It has shitload of leg presses, which I posted a video of. It has shitload of high bar squats. Somebody asked me, is that workout in reverse? And I said, it's not in reverse. And I said some stuff that I really wish I would have explained better. And here it is. Yes, I do my leg presses and squats in that, in that workout. I do them last. Here's why. Because if I did them first, I wouldn't be able to my calves or my hamstrings at all. Like after squats, I'm done. I can't fucking walk. There's the hamstrings would just be totally pointless. Never mind the fact that I'm also washing out metabolites with the calves and hamstrings 
and that's not good. As soon as you're done training your most high priority body part, you want to leave it the fuck alone. You don't want to train anything afterwards. You want to prioritize recovery. So they would not only would calves and hamstrings after uh, screw over my recovery a little bit, but this maximum effort that I'm giving to the quads fucks my MRV for the other two. But the good news is calves and hamstrings by themselves, especially with machines in isolation, they're kind of like a great warm up for me. And they don't fuck up the leg workout just the other way around. Does that make sense? Like, for example, mm-hmm. if you have to eat a whole bunch of pasta and, and chicken and a whole bunch of dessert, it's probably good to eat the pasta and chicken first because then you'll still really want the dessert. But if you flip the two around, you eat the dessert first, you're already pretty full and you ate the best, tastiest part of the meal already. You're not going to fucking eat pasta and chicken. You're going to fuck that. I don't even want that anymore, right? So you screwed yourself over. Order matters. And one of the reasons it matters is to preserve that MRV for the first and second part of your workout, or if you have three parts, still applies, right? And that's the one thing I don't understand. I don't understand by being facetious. I think it's fucking stupid. Is when people are like, yeah, man, I just did a three-hour workout. Like, what the fuck were you doing in the last hour? Because if you're training remotely hard enough to overload, you shouldn't be in there in hour number three. Does that make sense? Like either resting way too long, which you're pissing away time for no reason, or you are doing what's called junk volume. You're just there to just work blood through the muscle and that doesn't do shit at that point except interfere with the recovery of the muscles you've trained earlier. How's that for a rant? I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people, especially even myself, when you're taught as a personal trainer or a lot of most training programs, they never would put anything that's like an isolation before compound movements. And I think a lot of the time... I mean, you have to be careful, I guess, with some compound movements because you don't want to tie yourself too much out that you could end up injuring yourself. Um, but I guess, especially for someone like yourself, like you're, you know how to do the form, you know how risk of, like, risky you can be, and you know maybe that the calves and hamstrings, they're not major contributors to your quad work. So Not to the life press. <laughs> for sure. You know, Brad Schoenfeld actually posted a Facebook status recently summarizing some literature, and he literally said, he's like, the recommendation that we've been giving people for compound movement first is a largely without merit. Train what you want to prioritize first, what you don't care about as much second, and don't worry about like isolation or compound. Now, compounds are generally good to have first. Why? Because you have the most energy for them. And training and isolation, if you want the whole development, if I wanted the biggest glutes and the biggest quads and the biggest adductors, I'd squat first. Because then I hit all that shit, and then I can do some focus work on quads afterwards. When I do leg presses before I do squats, it makes my quads a limiting factor for my squat, and my glutes don't get as good of a work. My adductors don't get as good of a work. That is a calculated trade-off. Because another day of the week, I do glutes and adductors as priority instead of quads. So within the realm of an intelligently designed program, intelligently assuming I'm intelligent, so an attempt at an intelligent design program, within that realm, there can be times that you violate the general recommendation of compounds first. I would still say it's a great general recommendation. The difference is it's not always, it's not a religion. It's not always the best idea. And in some circumstances, it can definitely be violated. Yeah, I think that's great as well for people listening in that you can even just like people want to prioritize things, you can just switch the order of your workout. So if you want to prioritize deadlifts one day, you don't have to do anything too fancy. You could just put it first, and that is your prioritization right there. Uh, I don't want to keep yep. you too long, Mike, because I know you needed to uh, shoot off. So just want to thank you for answering those questions. The other ones sometimes. So thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been great talking to you, Mike, and uh, I hope to tune in with everyone soon. Thank you so much for having me.